Just a quick reminder to kind of get us in uh, to the flow here. We've been talking about uh, different kinds of non-Christian worldviews. Um, talking about a, uh, atheistic materialism, dualistic idealism, and then non-Christian religions. Uh, basically using Greg Bonson's categories there of those three categories of non-Christian worldviews. And then we, uh, we saw how the non-Christian religions are broken down into other religions, transcendent mysticism, uh, imminent moralism, and then the b- biblical counterfeits. Uh, so we've been talking about uh, some of those biblical counterfeits, and we will get into some that you're more familiar with, like uh, Mormonism and Islam and things like that. But um, we were saying that the most common biblical counterfeit, the most familiar one, uh, the one w- w- in which, with which we react uh, on a daily basis, a weekly basis, uh, especially in a place like uh, northern Colorado. Um, this is one that infiltrates our churches more than any other. We've been calling it sub-Christian Christianity or sub-Christian evangelicalism. And by sub-Christian, what we mean is that it's, it falls short of true, genuine Christianity because it does err on the gospel itself. So sometimes that means an outright perversion Uh, or denial of doctrine, and sometimes it is a matter of distorting doctrinal emphases, and then other times it has to do with uh, those necessary implications of the gospel. Uh, So we talked, um, been talking about a number of isms, as I said, antinomianism, uh, liberalism, minimalism, moralism, nominalism, politicism, and relativism. Uh, And we covered two of those last time. Uh, Anybody remember what we covered last time? Antinomianism and and moralism, good. So we were, we were seeing those as kind of two sides uh, of a ditch you fall into based on an attitude toward the law, either an attitude of lawlessness, that's antinomianism, that's confronted by passages like Romans 6, and then we discuss the opposite error, moralism, which is an attitude toward the law that says law will save me, law will sanctify me, law will make me acceptable before God, um, and that is an error that's confronted by the entire epistle of the Galatians. So two more errors, hopefully. <laughs> we'll see how an hour works out. I, I was tight for time when we had an hour and a half, but we'll see how it goes. Uh, but we're going to start here with uh, Christian liberalism. Christian liberalism. If uh, conservatism describes the tendency to conserve Uh, that is to hold fast and preserve something from the past, liberalism is its opposite. It's a, the liberalizing tendency is to loosen the anchors of the past and loosen what is viewed as shackles, chains of the past, and throw off old restraints and chart a very new and very different course. Uh, So it's that, it's that mantra of, we need change, we need change, that's the mantra of progressive, progressivism or liberals or uh, however you call them. So I once um, read an autobiography of Dr. Thomas Oden. And Thomas Oden, he's now in heaven, but he was a former liberal theologian. And he was saved in, in his 40s uh, after um, moving along <laughs> very intentionally a liberal trajectory, uh, getting schooled in liberalism. And, and really uh, rubbing shoulders with some of the very high up uh, liberal uh, stars in the, in the stratosphere. But then in his 40s, he was saved, and he started moving from there on out toward a very theologically conservative uh, trajectory for the rest of his academic career. Um, he described his years of wandering in the colorful fields of liberal theology, and he would use the word intoxicating to describe what that was like. To be a part of liberal theology, progressive theology, was intoxicating. I remember listening to an interview that Al Mohler conducted with Thomas Oden, and and Thomas Oden was describing that intoxicating sense uh, of being involved in in heresy. He said, quote, I loved the fantasies, and I loved the revolutionary illusions. I truly loved them. I loved heresy, end quote. Interesting. Uh, An honest admission there from a former insider in the liberal camp. It's an exciting thing and an invigorating thing, especially when you're young, 
to think that you've got, you've got your hands on something that none of those old fogies have ever figured out. In fact, the church has got it wrong for 2,000 years, and here you are figuring it all out. You've got the, you've got the goods. That's, that's what he's thinking as he's going in, into his liberal studies. You're venturing out, and you're moving beyond current theological horizons, which are limitations to the mind and limitations to the human spirit. And you're finding new, undiscovered truths and ways of looking at God. That is the liberalizing spirit. Not content to tell the old, old story, uh, but to find something new, something better, and get and chart a course there. And that is the spirit that invaded the historic mainline Protestant churches, which eventually, like the you can say the Presbyterian Church USA, you can look at that, you can look at Episcopal Church, you can look at a number of them um, and see how their trajectory changed with an embrace of liberal theology. It led to their departure from the historic Christian faith and really their ultimate demise. I mean, they are just shells of what they used to be. As I mentioned earlier, um, they wanted to defend Christianity as... This is, this is the, uh, the sentiment that the liberalizing spirit has that gets into the churches. They want to defend Christianity as legitimate uh, before a scorning and a skeptical modern world. But they end up in trying to um, make Christianity palatable to a scorning world, uh, they end up compromising it and capitulating to the spirit of the age. So when they compromised, they were no longer distinct. Now they looked exactly like the rest of the world does. And why would the world want to enter into the church when it looks like just like they do, only more religious? You know, why, who would, what secular person would want that? That's what they're trying to get away from. So once they compromise, they're no longer distinctly Christian, and therefore there's no longer, they no longer have a reason for existence. Same thing has been happening now among evangelicals for decades. Uh, there's been a desire to make Christianity look acceptable and cool and popular. And um, there's an interest in making Jesus look modern and making churches look modern and relevant. Um, Dr. James Boyce and many others back in the mid-1990s, they spotted in evangelicalism this same liberalizing spirit of the age. And they were dismayed. And they, uh, they, they put together actually a series of, of videos, produce a book, Here I Stand. I don't know if any of you have read that. Uh, very worth the read. As Dr. Boyce saw it, evangelicals, um, just like the Protestant mainline before them that departed from the faith, evangelicals had become embarrassed uh, by God's word, embarrassed by its unsophisticated supernaturalism, and instead they became enamored with the world's wisdom. They were unschooled in the Bible's doctrines because they'd been given a shallow uh, form of Christianity, and evangelicals instead became educated in the world's theology. So they were ignorant of the agenda of God's kingdom, the will, the interest of Christ, the Lord of that kingdom. Evangelicals instead turned to the world and looked to the world to receive its marching orders from the world's agenda. So armed with the world's wisdom, the world's theology, aiming towards its agenda, the evangelicals were interested in employing, in employing the world's methods. I want to, um, and it comes in in evangelicalism in different forms. Sometimes it's evangelicals being enamored by the world's methods and they want to use the world's methods for growing something really big. And then they end up compromising with the world's agenda and the world's theology and the world's wisdom. Sometimes it's the other way around. It's uh, like this is how the intrusion of psychology came into the church. They thought the world had great wisdom in this area of the soul. And so they went in through the world's wisdom and ended up, ended up adopting also the world's theology and the world's agenda and all the rest. So it comes in in different forms in evangelicalism. And I want to elaborate on this just a little bit um, because the same liberalizing drift that's infiltrated and influenced just about everything evangelicals have been known for, it's present with us today and it's actually affected structures and institutions that we have all grown up trusting. It's important to identify uh, the drift. When you think about local, national, international outreach like evangelism and missions, when we think about the evangelicals and many of its crusades and conferences, when we think about 
evangelicalism in the realm of publishing and its media, when we think about church growth techniques and leadership development, when we think about institutions of higher education, theological training, especially important there because they're, they're sending out pastors into pulpits all across the land. And pastors then influence whole churches of people. So institutions of higher education, theological training. When we think about evangelicalism in its discipleship and in the uh, you know, integrating Christian psychology, we might call their conformity to, with the world the corrosion of conformity because that's exactly what happened. By conformity with the world, they started to corrode as everything is decaying from the inside when evangelicals pursue friendship with the world. Um, I'm going to say a couple of things here that, uh, honestly, for, even for me to say them are kind of hard to, hard to say because these are, I'm going to talk about a couple of institutions here um, that have uh, had some departure. And I know that these are institutions that some people, uh, you know, in our, my age and older, have sent their kids, their grandkids, to go study at these institutions. Um, and there has been, uh, sadly, a departure. And there's a recent example of all this. Um, I, ju- I just say that, that I'm, uh, I, don't, I, don't s- I don't speak about any of this with a lot of glee or happiness. I don't, I don't like to speak about uh, a departure. I want everybody to stay on track. Um, but I, I've seen this in my own family and extended family and how, um, how significant this is, how it, it really destroys marriages, lives, homes, families, destroys whole churches. So I don't say this with any, any sense of um, uh, Pharisaism or anything like that. You may have read uh, that the board of Moody Bible Institute recently ad- uh, accepted the resignation of its president, Paul Nyquist, and its chief operating officer. And there were questions um, at that level about financial improprieties, but it has had more to do with Moody's willingness to turn a blind eye to worldliness in its ranks. The worldliness was years ago, more than probably 10 years ago, it was, the worldliness was at the board level. Uh, you may remember um, the high-stakes gambling habits of board member Jerry Jenkins and a gambling buddy of his who's a popular pastor named James McDonald. They, they used to go up here to Blackhawk in Central City and gamble. And Jerry Jenkins' son is, is evidently a big gambler as well. By not dealing with that and nipping it in the bud and letting it, letting it go, I think it's really bred a culture of worldliness among the students and a theological drift among the professors. I could actually go back before that when I got out of the Navy and met a friend of mine who had gone to Moody Bible Institute and how he came back with, I think at the time, when it wasn't even as cool as it is now, he had a soul patch and earrings and he was working for Willow Creek's media uh, and television ministry and he was enamored with everything that he was learning from Moody that was telling him, teaching him, that the way you're going to do church now is a completely different way. Because modern people, they don't like text. They like the visual. So we're going to do visual media in church. And he's all into that. And he was, he was dismayed at my, my interest in Bible study and in learning from people like John MacArthur and R.C. Sproul and all the rest. There's a culture of worldliness among the students that's been going on for a long time and a theological drift. One student wrote to the Moody Bible Institute administration. This, is an art, this was actually posted online, but it's since been removed since the removal of Nyquist. But in her letter, she cited the ungodliness of the student body in which coarse joking and sexualized speech were characteristic habits and lifestyles. Many who are aware of this environment, they're keeping their students away from Moody, and it's had an effect on their enrollment. Another student wrote and agreed with that, saying candidly, Moody's enrollment problem is one of an ungodly culture, one that has walked away from the word, that has lowered standards to hide sin, that has compromised integrity for money, and that has traded truth for tolerance, a culture that now saturates Moody. The first student I mentioned is a 
2017 alumna. And she wrote about her experience in the classroom with, with several number of firsthand examples of really academic slothfulness and unprofessionalism by the professors. Things like watching TED Talks in class and TV shows and making comment on cultural things like that. More disconcerting to her, though, was an overt anti-white, anti-conservative political sentiment. Moody's declining enrollment, which has led to the shuttering of its Washington campus, that got the board's attention. They started to say, wait, we've got a, we've got a cash problem here. What's going on? The problem is they're less attuned to the source, the real source of the problem, which has to do with the liberalization of Moody Bible Institute's faculty and administration. Again, the 2017 alumna, she wrote this, Moody Bible Institute is not the training ground it once was. Moody has become not a unique place to study and know God's word, but instead a place infiltrated by liberal political stances and cliched cultural buzzwords without a solid theological foundation. A departure from Moody's central and driving mission to train men and women for faithful service by knowing and teaching the word of God, end quote. The culturally determined agendas have infected the whole institution, all through the classroom level, but also at the administration level. This alumna's professors um, in her urban studies program routinely marginalized conservative students and sided openly with liberal students. So it was a, it was a form in class of public shaming to make uh, students of color feel very comfortable criticizing uh, their white brothers and sisters. So they led the class, the, the professors did, led the class in discussions and exercises on, on white privilege, identity politics, social justice. And the sentiment is, that's rehearsed uh, by a growing and vocal majority of students in campuses just like Moody, it's summarized very well in an article that actually Bill Wilcutts sent to me, I don't know, a month or two ago. This, uh, this article is called Woke is the New Saved. It's by John Zmirak, I think is how you say his name. And he is interacting, just writing a little short essay on a longer essay by Alan Jacobs called Wokeness and Myth on Campus. In case you don't know, the word woke, W-O-K-E, is talking about an awakening to your white privilege, coming to understand that you have had it easy because of slavery in the past, and therefore once you come to realize that and have a, a properly um, penitent attitude about it, you have awoken. So you are woke. You were in the category of woke. You woke up. So let me read. Um, this is uh, from John Zimrak's article, or Zmirnak's article. I should, how do you say his name? John Zmirak. Zmirak. No N. So uh, he writes this. Here's how it works. By listening to professors or following peer pressure, a student discovers that the world is deeply wrong, permeated by evil. Its evil is inequality. And that evil has an author, straight white males. Realizing the depth and extent of this all-pervading evil comes as a kind of conversion. One wakes up. And then one is woke. That's SJW speak for saved. SJW is social justice warrior. The social justice warrior uh, uh, jargon for saved. Hence the first moment of faith. I was once lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. If a student belongs to any other group but straight white males, then she is in luck. She's certified as a victim. She deserves special treatment from everyone, from college deans to government bureaucrats. Even better, she should feel virtuous for wallowing in anger and resentment, no matter if she's Malia Obama. She can righteously seethe with rage at jobless white coal miners or homeless white veterans. Her sense of victimhood gives her the blessed assurance that she is part of the elect. This creed offers salvation even to the worst of sinners, straight white males. The price is steep, a life of self-denial and penance. But for those who walk this path, rewards await. You can attain justification, not by your own efforts, but by the righteousness that suffering innocent victims, 
non-straights, non-whites, non-males, can impute to you. As an ally of the less privileged, you earn the same right to to despise the mass of oppressors, and feminists will date you for whatever that's worth. (laughs) Going deeper into the cult, and the disciplines get more rigorous. Now, white women must admit their role in oppressing women of color. This requires some of the groveling that white males must endure, but it offers the same benefit, a sense of forgiveness and spiritual progress. Likewise, black males must atone to women of color. All straights must bow down to gays. Even gays must make amends for their insensitivity to trans people. I'm not sure who trans people of color must apologize, but give intellectuals time and they'll find someone or invent them. The new religious movement apes the structure of, the, of a Christian conversion and of subsequent life in the spirit. It does so, of course, at a much shallower level. It replaces worship with protest, spirituality with unhinged historionics, examination of conscience with the scapegoating of others conveniently dead or out of power, end quote. Folks, this is, this is written in a, in a funny way to poke fun at it, but it really does get to the heart of this attitude and this sentiment that is happening. And I'll just say, not in just college and university campuses, which is certainly happening in, in the secular colleges and university campuses, but also in Christian university in college and even seminary campuses and in churches, churches even here in our town. You just need to understand that. It is the norm on secular college and university campuses nationwide, but it has been picked up uh, among Christian institutions too, and it happened at Moody. I personally experienced uh, this while meeting with Moody radio executives years ago. We were told that our brand of ministry, that's how they referred to it, a brand of ministry, that is Bible teaching, and I clarified this. Are you talking about Bible teaching and um, Talking about the gospel in terms of sin and repentance and saving faith, that brand of ministry, yes, that brand of ministry, that kind of thinking and preaching is too white. I actually sat across the table from a radio executive from Moody who told me exactly that. Moody is moving away from that kind of, he told me, moving away from that kind of white audience programming so it can cater to the needs of urban minorities who have been neglected for far too long by the white community. So the administration at the very top has been pushing this agenda and hiring a faculty that will push this agenda. One chapel presentation that this alumna uh, talks about was especially a poignant illustration of this. It was a dramatic presentation by an African-American poet theologically liberal, appallingly one-sided, and yet it was applauded with a standing ovation and was led by the president, Paul Nyquist. Conservative professors at Moody, while some of them are still there, they're either retired or marginalized, as are conservatives within the student body. Those who see sin as the fundamental problem with the human condition and the gospel as the only remedy are ignored or dismissed, marginalized. They, rem- they remove those kinds of professors from influence in the classroom on the student body, and they send them around to conferences and raising funds for Moody from the older, more conserv- conservative donor base. Uh, so that way they solve two problems, get them away from the students, but get them close to the donors. And the donors, none the wiser, continue giving money to Moody, thinking they're supporting the same institution. And that allows the liberalizing professors to remain on campus. They're kept away from the donors. They're shielded from the donors, but they influence that student body. I've gone into this not to pile on Moody Bible Institute. That, that doesn't cause me to rejoice at all. It makes me sad. But you just need to know that this liberalizing drift has been underway since, at least in my Christian experience, since the early 90s. And frankly, There are many Bible colleges and seminaries which were once formerly faithful and they've already gone the way of Moody. Places like Fuller Seminary and Biola University, others, once they were trusted evangelical institutions, but no longer. And I think sometimes in the older generations, we're unaware 
were unaware because the people that talk to us, the donors, are not speaking that same language. It's the people down at the millennial level and below. When the world's wisdom and the world's theology sets the agenda for the church, then evangelicals are trying to solve the inequities of things like social justice. They're trying to make reparations for slavery. They're trying to apologize and do penance for institutionalized racism or anti-gay or anti-trans or some kind of homophobia that we all have if we disagree with their, their position on morality. We run around, if we're, if we're following the world's agenda, we run around trying to meet all those felt needs and provide therapy for the psychologized self. And in short, evangelicals that are buying into this, and there are many, there, it's really, um, I, I don't want to come to a point and say it's a majority, but it is a high percentage. But they're trying to chase the world's approval. They're trying to find acceptance in the culture by pursuing the world's agenda. And if they don't stop and repent, they will like the Protestant mainline denominations before them, they will run themselves into utter irrelevancy. That's where it's heading. When they become just like the world, the world can no longer discern the difference and the world no longer cares to listen to them because they're just basically an echo chamber of all their same positions. So here are some questions for you. And this, we do have time for you to interact, so please interact. Um, how can you tell whether or not you're dealing with a Christian, a liberalized Christian, a Christian liberal. How can you tell? I mean, they attend an evangelical church regularly, uh, usually a very big one, an influential one. So how can you spot their drift or their acquiescence into Christian liberalism? What would you say? Yeah, Joe. They're slippery when, they, when you ask them direct questions. What do you think's behind that being slippery? Not wanting to be nailed down, you know? It's like nailing jello to a wall, right? You can never get them tacked down just right. So, yeah. No, that's how you can tell. They're slippery when you ask them for clarity on their positions. They don't mention the Bible very much. Now that's all true. Why? Why is that that they don't mention the Bible? They don't believe it. Very simple. Wayne? And then we'll go back here. Okay, so they use the concept of grace like the, a Jedi mind trick. You know, to get out of a conversation, just grace, grace, and then they're out. Yeah. Um, Paulette? Yeah, that's, that's very true. And, and, hey, point taken. I am worried about my sin. And now I'm worried about yours. So let's talk about <laughs> Scotty. Okay, good. Once again, do they, what do they believe about the Bible? How, how do you nail down their positions? Look at their fruit. Look at their fruit. And it, when they say, when they, when they deflect about their own lack of fruit or their own rotten fruit, you can tell you're, you're, you're touching pretty close to the heart. Um, I think I saw Rebecca. Okay. All right. A lot of times about the entertainment. Okay. And the fruit that they claim? Oh, that's the fruit that they claim, is the social causes. It's, it's nothing about the fruit of the Spirit. It's all about, look at what I've done at this you know, shelter or help these people or whatever. Yeah, Bryce. <laughs> right. Bryce is like not messing around. Let's get to the heart of the issue. Enough of this mealy mouth stuff. Do you believe Genesis 1? <laughs> I like that. That's really good. Josh. Yeah. Yeah. Not repentance. Not their own personal sin, repentance and righteousness. That's right. Wes. Okay, good. They're more concerned about the judgment of man in their current time than they are about the judgment of God for all time. That's exactly right. Good. Tammy, one more. You're the last. Right. She said that she, as a, as a for, were you, you're an alumna of, of Moody? Both of you, both Ren and Tammy graduated from Moody. And she worked in the media department and saw the shift when, a, I won't name the president that came in, but when a certain president came in, she's, that's when she saw the shift where they're less concerned about standing for truth, righteousness, come what may, and let that garner the respect of the world or not, but we're going to do that. She saw a shift from that attitude, which had been Moody's historic position, and they shifted more to be concerned about their image before the world on the world's terms. And so that's how they wanted to win influence, is to be acceptable in the world's eyes. It goes back to what Wes just said, that 
that um, you know, being more concerned with the opinions of the world, that is the concern or the, the chief sin of liberalism. It's pride. It's pride. Uh, since you're married to her, you get to tag on. So, <laughs> yeah. yeah. So he was just saying, if you didn't hear him, he said that he, coming from Nagaland, he's like, okay, new country, got to figure out when in Rome, do what the Romans do. You know, I don't know what, I don't know what's going on here. But when he saw even him being, uh, you know, kind of an outsider to American culture, uh, when he saw Moody shift from the hymns that were sung out of hymn books and everything else and, and shift from that to a rap group coming in, he said, something is not right. Something is fishy here. So that's what he was saying. Um, sad to see that. And, and listen, you know, again, lest we get haughty and think we're above all this, we're not. We're not. We are susceptible to that same foundational sin of wanting the respect of the world, wanting the respect of man. We have to eschew the respect of the world and make sure that we're walking righteously before our God and then let the chips fall where they may, right? In um, tell, um, one of the telltale signs that I would recommend that if you suspect you may be talking to a Christian liberal, um, ask that person to diagnose the problem for you. That's kind of like a Bryce Delarosa get to the heart of the matter. Here's another way you can get to the heart of the matter is just say, hey, what is the problem? What is the problem with individuals? What's the problem with families? What's the problem with society? What's the problem with nations? What is the nature of any or all of these problems? What should the answer be if they're not a liberal? Sin. Sin. Good. Great. Well-taught church. That's awesome. So if you take, you know, think about this. Take the politically charged issue of racism. Um, racism, which is exposing a lot of this recently. And racism, along with racism, is all this uh, gender stuff and, and uh, sexual orientation stuff, ism. What is the diagnosis of racism? It's, it's not the fundamental problem with individuals, families, society as a whole when it comes to the issue of race relations. And let me just say for the record that there is only one race. It's called the human race. And we're just different shades, okay? One race. So there is no race relations issue, technically, okay? But understanding that, there are different cultures and different colors of skins and things like that. So, so what is the fundamental problem when they, those people don't get along? Sin. If you go back to American and European slavery, what was the problem there? Sin. It was called kidnapping, man-stealing, and putting all those people onto a, a boat without compassion and only concerned about profits. That's sin. We can, we can see that in the Bible and diagnose that, but you'd go back past European slavery, and where did they get it from? Oh, African slavery and Arab slavery and the slave trade that came through all, it was around the whole world. And if you go back in time and perpetuity, it's always happening. <laughs> slavery was, is, is, has fueled the economies of, of nations uh, throughout human history. But all of it has to do with sin. It doesn't have to do with race. It doesn't have to do, I mean, maybe that's a, an easy trigger and identifier for people to, to sin against other people. But that's the issue is the sin problem. And so if sin is the problem, what's the answer? Only Christ, only the cross, only the gospel. So Christian liberals will sometimes confess sin as the root and fundamental problem, but they quickly leave that behind. They leave that diagnosis to find a more immediate need to address. The real sin is white privilege or sexism or inequality or the marginalization of people who prefer aberrant sexual practices. That's the sin, uh, is that we, we don't treat those people well. So go feed the homeless, do home repairs, give out clothing, do penance to some marginalized person, anything but tell people that they're sinners in need of salvation, sinners in need of divine righteousness. No one is going to be persecuted for doing good deeds. No one's going to be persecuted for standing in a soup kitchen or food pantry or social justice projects or on and on and on it goes. Um, no one's going to be persecuted for that, but you might be persecuted if you are proclaiming the gospel because that message of the cross is truly offensive to a proud heart. That's where we need to go as following Christ. So the, that's the root sin 
um, I believe, in Christian liberalism is pride. It is, a, it is a pride that cares more about the respect of other people than it cares about the judgment of Christ. People are ashamed of the gospel, they're ashamed of Christ, and ashamed of their fellow Christians even. Uh, when you cater to the world's interests and give weight to its opinions and credence to its criticisms, whenever the world sets your agenda, you're going to be committing the chief sin of liberalism, which is to be ashamed of the gospel. Okay? So that's just a quick wrap on Christian liberalism. And I want to look at a separate uh, error. Um, it's, it's almost an opposite error, but it is an error that really does contribute to and create the problem of Christian liberalism. It's fascinating. And I call it uh, Christian minimalism. I'm not the only one to call it that, but Christian minimalism. Just as it sounds, it has to do with the tendency to try to whittle Christianity down to its lowest common denominator. Okay? So let's, let's not get lost in all this theology. Uh, let's not... Justification, quit using that term. Just talk about being good with God. You know, that's, that's something that people can understand. So let's boil this all down, whittle it down to something really simple, cookies on the bottom shelf kind of gospel, and let's just make it easy for people. I mean, after all, you Christians, you're so into your theology. I mean, save that for later. Save it for 10 years into the future when these people are really bought in because Jesus is such a good guy. Like how John MacArthur illustrates Christian minimalism, he writes this, We have reduced the message to a list of facts stated in the fewest possible words and getting fewer all the time. Six steps to peace with God. Five things God wants you to know. Four spiritual laws. Three truths you can't live without. Two ways to live and one way to heaven. Clever, isn't it? We want to boil down Christianity to its bare essence and put the cookies on the bottom shelf like Jesus did, you know, like Billy Graham did. People have actually said this to me before when I was in the South. If it was good enough for old Billy, it's good enough for me. I don't know if you've heard that sentiment expressed before. But why do you think that people want to minimalize the gospel and boil it down to its bare essence? What is the motivation for this? Leah. Laziness. Why? What, what, they're lazy about what? They don't want to study? Sorry, you weren't, re- you weren't ready for my counter question, were you? Okay, laziness. We'll leave it there. Someone else raise their hand? Yes, Lila? Okay, fear. They're, they're fearful of being persecuted in return because, of, because they get so elaborate in their theology and they just want to boil it down to something easy? You think? Okay, okay, all right. So boil it down to something that's more palatable for them, okay? Make it easier for them. Uh, Scott, did I see your hand? Go ahead. Okay, so did you steal your answer from Natalie? It looks like it, because she thinks that's her answer. If it was, if it was, yeah. Okay, so Scott, Natalie saying the same thing. Don't make me think. You know, I, I actually read an article. I was uh, used to work at an internet, uh, you know, building an internet uh, presence and, and everything. And, and one of the articles I read was about a legitimate practice on the internet. To, it was basically saying, don't make me think. Don't make me think. Like, don't make me look at your website. I have to think through where do I find stuff. Make it easy for me. But that same mentality that pervades the Internet and makes the Internet surfable and usable and useful to us, uh, gives us a facility with using the tools, is the same mentality now we take into church. Don't make me think. And Rebecca held up her Bible and says, yeah, don't make me read this whole thing. Let's boil it down to the comic book. You know, let's do Bible comic book. You know, and just, yeah, just a just a handout. Actually, don't even give me paper. I can't be bothered with paper anymore. Just text it to me, all right? In in an emoji, a gospel emoji. (laughs) Don't make me think. But that's essentially, if you boil down that comment about don't make me think, it's back to Leah, what she said, laziness, laziness. Yeah, Bill. Okay, all right. So it's boiling it down to a lowest common denominator because you know how big your church can get if you don't draw doctrinal lines? Just, let's just wipe away doctrinal lines. Make it easy. Call yourself a Christian? Come on over. Come on over. We're all like you. And then you get all kinds of different people coming in. Yeah, that's right. Good. So that was Wayne's comment too. Inclusivism. Okay. There's a forced unity there. I like the way you put that. That's true. A forced unity. I'm going to get into uh, some of that. One more comment, Josh. Mm-hmm. 
Okay, so it sounds like it's connected over with what Bill and, and uh, Scott and Natalie were saying. is just that that hard truth making me think now it's confronting my prejudices. It, it confronts my, my, my uh, you know, shallowly formed opinions that I'm proud about and want to hold on to. Everything that I learned in my freshman year at college, you know, in university, you're going to disrupt that? I mean, that was wisdom, brilliance. You know, in my, all my 101 classes. Philosophy 101 taught me everything I need to know. Um, so I, I want to I say that um, several, several motivations for Christian minimalism, and we are tight on time. So I'm going to go through this kind of fast. First motivation, and I think a starting point, it's an instinctive emphasis of Arminian theology, which is fundamentally man-centered and not God-centered, and the most immediate interest is in getting somebody to make a decision for Christ. If that's your concern, you want to boil it down to its bare essence nutshell so they don't get confused, and you can seal the deal on the doorstep. Get it done. Get them in. That's the mentality. You get people saved in much larger numbers if you keep that message really, really simple. That's the idea. And many today have been raised in an Arminian evangelical environment where getting people saved is the essence of living the Christian life. Go out and be a soul winner. Go be a soul winner. And if you, if you have a lot of people that you're bringing into church, you're a mature Christian. So that equates to maturity. Many people have been taught in order to encourage their evangelism, they've been taught to boil down that gospel to the lowest common denominator. So again, it's let's not get hung, too hung up on theology. Let me just get them the basics, get them saved, get them to make a profession of faith, and then we can leave it to God to get them the rest of the way. Just get them to say, Christ is my Savior. Boom, you're in. You've got fire insurance for, etern for eternity, and you're one of us now. And we'll worry about God making them true disciples later on. And this is, I think, one of the ways that uh, Moody Bible Institute um, has contributed significantly to Christian minimalism, but they're not the only ones. Um, it's just kind of in the spirit of the, of the age. But that institution in particular, just to pick on it just a little bit, has grown up outside the local church. It really was intentionally designed to be built outside the local church because that's exactly how Dwight Moody operated, and he was not the only one. Many people operating outside the local church without a local church authority over them, they were entrepreneurs, they were gifted, and they didn't want the confines of the local church to dictate or direct any of their giftedness. So they went outside the local church and did their thing. And Moody, in his um, ministry, interacted with Chicago-area businessmen who were very pragmatically minded. Um, they, with, with all of that environment, they learned to package the gospel like a product and they emphasized the benefits of the gospel and de-emphasized all its demands because the interest, after all, is in closing the deal. Let's get the deal done. We do not have time to unpack this in detail, but I'll refer you to a book uh, called Guaranteed Pure, The Moody Bible Institute, Business, and the Making of Modern Evangelicalism. You just Google Guaranteed Pure, by Timothy Gloge, it's G-L-O-E-G-E, -E, Guaranteed Pure, you'll find it, it's a very good book. But suffice it to say, you can draw a line from back in the 1800s, Charles Finney's brand of revivalism, to Dwight L. Moody's revivalism, to Billy Graham's crusades, all of it driven by Arminian theology, which is concerned about getting people saved which is, I don't want to say it's a bad motivation. Do you want to see people saved? I do. Of course we do. But it really does minimize the gospel down to a script, and it eschews or, or spurns anything that seems too complicated or too deep. Throughout the years, I've read a number of biographies on Billy Graham and his ministry, um, some supportive, some critiquing, um, mindful of it, just as he's you know, passed into heaven recently. And we certainly appreciate so much about Billy Graham, but there are some things that we need to, need to be really thoughtful about. Um, the one that I read most recently and enjoyed was a decidedly, decidedly positive take on Billy Graham. It was written by Grant Wacker, titled America's Pastor Billy Graham and the Shaping of a Nation. 
The subtitle, The Shaping of a Nation, is a very, very important statement of Billy Graham's massive and lasting influence on evangelicalism. When he was asked, when Grant Wacker was asked, or Graham Wacker, I should say, no, Grant Wacker, was um, asked about Billy Graham's depth as a theologian and a thinker, Grant Wacker responded by saying this, quote, He was not a theologian and never pretended to be. He saw himself as an evangelist, and he defined that as a person who invited others to a Christian life. Now, I'm just going to stop before I read the rest of the quote. That's not the def- definition biblically of an evangelist. And a, a Christian is someone who invites others to a Christian life. <laughs> you know, that's just what Christians do. An evangelist, according to Ephesians 4, is someone who is, think of an apologist, someone who is really good at defending the faith and articulating the gospel and then training others to do that. That's really the gift of evangelist. Anyway, Billy Graham defined that his, his way. He believed, going on with the quote, he believed that the average person had a working vocabulary of 600 words or fewer. And so he tried to keep his vocabulary as simple as possible, his sentences short. Now, what was the message? It was boilerplate evangelical theology. Humans are broken. Humans have sinned. And God has provided the means for redressing that sin through the death of Jesus Christ and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And all the people have to do is accept that gift that Christ has made possible and then live to an, to an upright Christian life. So that was the core of it. One of his associates said that if you've heard 10 of Billy, Billy's sermons, you've heard them all. I would say that if you've heard one of Billy's sermons, you've heard them all because the actual text of every sermon was John 3.16. End quote. That really is an insightful assessment of Billy Graham's preaching, and it, it does encapsulate the heartbeat of his ministry. And we do want to say we do appreciate how God used Billy Graham, especially as we observe his, his passing into heaven. But listen, there is more to the gospel than John 3.16. Billy Graham crusades are not the model for church ministry, nor is it the model for evangelism itself. By boilerplating the gospel message, Billy Graham was able to reduplicate his crusades and kind of package them and take them on the road and do the same thing everywhere. And sadly, that did nothing to deepen evangelicalism. In fact, it's probably a consensus by both critics and uh, admirers alike that they look back and say that Billy Graham's method of ministry has actually weakened evangelicalism precisely for this reason. It's minimized the gospel by boiling it down to John 3.16. In the interest of time, I'm not going to read it, but if you look at John 3.16 in the context of John 3, 1 through 21, you'll see that that is an extremely profound section of Scripture. It deals with the sovereignty sovereign initiative of God in salvation. It deals with the Holy Spirit's regenerating work. It deals with the deadness of the sinner, the inability of the sinner. It has everything to do with really Calvinistic theology, not Arminian theology. It's a very strong passage. And so don't get me wrong, I love John 3.16, but rightly interpreted in its context. But the job isn't done at John 3.16. There is profound depth in the gospel and life-changing meaning and shifting the focus of sinners on themselves to the worship of the triune God. So that's one motivation for Christian minimalism. It's an Arminian theology that treats the gospel like a product to sell to unbelievers. So you emphasize the benefits of the product, you keep the fine print really, really small, the boilerplate that message so that we can mobilize thousands of crusaders and just don't make it too complicated because after all, we're trying to close the deal. Okay, second motivation for Christian minimalism, and I'm going to keep this really fast, guys. It's the growth of the Christian parachurch movement. And this is what Wayne and Gary referred to as inclusivism, that spirit of inclusivism. Christian parachurch organizations Most of them, anyway, are doctrinally broad by nature and by design. They draw their employees from all different kinds of churches, and they join them together in common cause around maybe one emphasis or two or a set of emphases like evangelism or education or relief work or whatever it is. 
So to bring all those people from all those disparate backgrounds together and unite them and get them mobilized to work toward a common goal, you have to minimize the distinctive doctrinal backgrounds that they come from. You have to make doctrine not an issue. And that usually is not hard when many of the workers in the parachurch ministries are coming from very weak churches where many of them are easily influenced young people with a lot of energy but not a lot of wisdom or perhaps some of them aren't even Christians at all. Pretty soon the parachurch, because of its out, its, its, its growing size and its budget and its, its excitement, pretty soon that sets the agenda for the local church. And that's been happening for decades as local churches have supported and resourced and supplied parachurch ministries. And then conversely, parachurch ministries have gutted local churches of time, treasure, and people. But then the parachurch becomes the more important of the institutions. The tail ends up wagging the dog. And the Christian minimalism that dominates the parachurch, that then that same spirit then infiltrates local churches, teaching people that doctrine just isn't that important if you want to get the job done. Pragmatism is really what rules. So I'll say just this one more thing. A third motivation for Christian minimalism is just plain self-centered laziness, like you guys were saying. Laziness. People have an aversion for study, for thinking, for expository listening. They prefer to have their ears tickled, their egos stroked. They don't want to go deep. Don't make me think is the mantra of the age. And they prefer to be distracted and entertained and mollified with really an easy listening, listening gospel. So I'm sure there are other, other motivations as well, but I think we've kind of gotten a handle on it. And I just want to ask real quick. So, okay, so let's say you meet a Christian liberal or a Christian minimalist. What are you going to do to evangelize that person? Okay, how are you going to have this conversation? You need to realize that like any false worldview and a, one of the biblical counterfeits in particular, you just need to stay within Scripture because that is our authority source. That's our authority source. And it's what they profess to be their authority source too. So stick with Scripture. Come to the standard of Scripture. So come alongside your sub-Christian friend, whether it's an antinomian or moralist, or whether it's a... Uh, Christian liberal or Christian minimalist, come alongside your friend and help him to see what the Bible actually says, which is contradictory to his liberalism and his minimalism. So look for signs that a professor of Christ may not be a possessor of Christ. So look for, uh, we talked about fruit. We talked about identifying the problem as sin and not some other superficial issue. Uh, we talked about the problem of, or the issue of truth. What do they think about truth and, and error, absolute truth in particular? So look for signs that your, your professor, the Christian professor, may not be a possessor of Christ. What are, what are some of those signs? You'll know them by their fruits. You'll listen to their speech because out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. You look at their behavior. You see very little signs of holiness, no fruitfulness. You listen to their thinking patterns. There's all those things, desires, motivations. Then after you look for those signs, take some time to ask diagnostic questions just to start a conversation with them. So, hey, what church do you attend? Um, they may tell you and then that solves it for you. Okay, yeah, you're a liberal. <laughs> um, or, what, hey, what's your pastor preaching through? You know, just ask a really inoffensive, you know, not a, not a difficult, awkward question. Hey, what's your pastor preaching through? Oh, really? She's preaching through uh, 1 Timothy 2, huh? Okay, huh. What do you think of that, you know? Um, so what have you been learning? Here's a good one. What are you learning from Scripture lately? Are you reading your Bible? <laughs> what are you learning from Scripture? What do you love the most? Ask this question. What kind of gospel do you share with other people? What kind of gospel? Help me to, you know, I always do that. Uh, I'm shot in the chest. I got two minutes to live test. Hey, hey, tell me the gospel in two minutes or less. I've been, I'm bleeding out right here. Help me, help me. What, how do I get to heaven? Get them to play that game with me. Some people don't like that game. Um, ask questions about their affections that reveal their affections. Like, hey, what do you love the most? What do you most want in life? Or, hey, what do you fear the most? What are you most afraid of? That reveals a lot about what people really think. So after you ask some of these non-offensive 
questions and try to get to the heart of where they are and try to identify kind of where they are as, as one of these isms. Ask them some permission-oriented questions. You know what I mean by that? Um, hey, if you were wrong about your assurance of faith in Christ, would you, would you want to know that? Or, hey, could I ask a couple questions that challenge your thinking a little bit on that point? Um, can I ask you a few questions that challenge your faith or your interpretation of that passage? You'll be surprised, but when you ask, hey, could I ask you a couple questions that maybe are a little challenging? You'll be surprised at how quickly they are to say, oh, sure. Why? Because they're filled with pride and they don't want to, <laughs> they don't want to back away from your questions. So use that to your advantage. Um, ask those permission-oriented questions, and then ask as you ask deeper questions, look for evidence of regeneration. Look for a true and accurate gospel. I mean, maybe they're not well taught, and maybe they just need some help articulating, so be gentle. But look for an accurate gospel. Look for evidence of Christian affections, what they love the most, what they hate the most. Um, ask them this question. Hey, what, what makes heaven attractive to you? And if they say things like, I am tired of this husband I got, you know, then that's okay, good. Um, thanks for revealing that. Um, I, I, I can't wait to escape all the trials of life. Um, I am tired of struggling with money, and when I get there, streets of gold, man. I'm just going to scoop some up in my pocket and off to the store. Just whatever it is, just say, hey, what is it about heaven? that you really like? What is it about heaven that makes you want to go there? If the answer isn't something like, God is there, and I want to worship him forever, or something like that, you might be dealing with someone that's one of those isms. So, after you hear those things, help them to see the deficiencies, that they're in grave, grave danger, and then teach them repentance. Teach them how to walk through repentance. Teach them an accurate gospel. Teach them what they what they need to love, what they need to hate, you know, those kinds of things, okay? We'll, we'll unpack this a little more in time to come, but we've, I'm 10 minutes over, so forgive me for that sin. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the time we've had tonight, and I pray that some of what we've talked about will be helpful uh, just to diagnose some of the, the people that are weaned uh, from the culture of the world. Um, they've been raised, born and bred in evangelical churches that some of them, frankly, have departed or have drifted or are just not as strong as maybe in their founding days. And, and we just, <clears throat> just want to ask for your grace and mercy. Father, we do see um, in a lot of ways uh, Christianity or evangelicalism adrift. And that, that really doesn't, um, that doesn't say anything about the promise that Christ uh, made in Matthew 16, where he said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Nothing will thwart his efforts or his plan or his end and his purpose. And so we stand on that confidence and that promise, but we do want to return to do and be what a church is and does. We pray, Father, that you would help us to, to return to that, to be clear biblically and and really guide off of your word. We pray that that would be our foundation and our anchor point. That we would stand up and, and let the world love us or hate us, but let us stand for your truth and be salt and light in this world. We're thankful for the clarity that comes from your truth. I am thankful every day as I think about your truth that it, it is absolutely reliable. That there is no shadow of turning or change with you. And so your word is eternal. We can rely on it. We can build our lives on it. We pray, Father, that you would just help us to, to be steadfast and solid and that we, you'd help us to rescue some who have grown up like we have and they're adrift and they're confused and they're perplexed. Their lives are filled with sin. They're enslaved. They're hurting. They're wandering. We just pray, Lord, that you help us to go out and find those sheep and rescue them and bring them back to the fold. So please help us to have the heart of the Lord Jesus Christ, the chief shepherd. Help us to shepherd people like Jesus. In Jesus' name.